Australia has been blessed with many good leaders. You know, they're decent, they're fair, they're pragmatic. Uh, uh, but I don't think we've been blessed with many great leaders. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. I first met McGregor Duncan in the late 1990s, when I worked as an associate to Michael Kirby on the High Court. Michael Kirby chose McGregor as my successor, uh, and we stayed in touch, catching up regularly when we both lived in Canberra. In 2000, both of us went to the United States to study at uni US universities, and we ended up uh, in 2004 collaborating on a book called Imagining Australia, also co-authored with Peter Tynan and David Madden. McGregor became one of my closest friends. We've eaten many meals together, drunk many beers together, and he was one of the groomsmen at my wedding. But he's different from me too. A passion for the AFL and his Adelaide Crows, a knowledge of banking and business, uh, and now, after two decades working in the United States, he's returned to Australia, where he's in the finance sector looking at innovation. It's a pleasure to have him on the Good Life podcast today. And thank you for inviting me, Andrew. Now, let's, uh, let's start with politics. It's not a show about politics, but, but politics really did shape your upbringing, didn't it? Uh, it did. It did. Uh, it's, a, it's a theme that's run throughout my, the, my, uh, my father's side of the family, at least. Uh, my father was a federal politician uh, in Adelaide uh, for many years. Uh, and his uh, his great grandfather, well, sorry, his grandfather was a federal was a federal senator from New South Wales. Uh, I think his great grandmother uh, was the first uh, president of the New South Wales Labor Women's Council. Her husband was uh, himself, I think, a Labor another Labor senator from New South Wales. So, quite a tradition of um, of uh, of public service on 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 my father's side of the family and that was always a theme a sort of a, a quiet uh, often unspoken theme in the family uh, that, that public service was the noblest pursuit what was it like growing up as the kid of a local member of parliament uh, did you feel like you're on show when you're out in public uh, not really uh, so uh, my, actually my parents uh, my parents divorced when I was quite young uh, and so we spent the weeks with my mother and her uh, and her second husband, and we would spend the weekends with my father. Uh, so in some ways, it was a sort of a bifurcated upbringing. Uh, you know, on the one hand, I just mentioned my father's side with this sort of history of politics and public service. On my mother's side, uh, they're sort of uh, Melbourne-born. Uh, they were sort of uh, liberal voting uh, Presbyterians, uh, sort of in the tradition of Deacon and Menzies and Fraser sort of full of rectitude and, uh, and earnestness and thrift and the 
sort of, uh, you know, showing fealty to the Kirk and to the bagpipe. It was sort of a very much a Scotch-Irish type middle class uh, family, uh, private school, small business. Uh, and so in that sense, I sort of, you know, there was a, there, as I said, there was a bifurcation between these, between these two worlds. Uh, you know, so during, during the weeks, there wasn't much politics, or well, there wasn't much labour politics, to be sure, uh, in sort of, in mum's uh, side of the, the family. On the weekends, obviously a different story. Uh, uh, you know, it was a, a sort of a, uh, a collection of, um, of all sorts of people who would roll through Dad's house, so sort of, you know, politicians and judges and political staffers and apparatchiks and union officials and... Uh, it really was a menagerie of, 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 of different characters. I remember you talking about going to the races with Mick Young. Uh, what was he like? Uh, I mean, I didn't know Mick well. Uh, I had interactions with him on a couple of occasions. But I remember, I think the, the occasion that you're referring to, we were actually at a, at a restaurant one day on a Saturday morning at a coffee shop and, um, and Mick turned to me. I must have been probably 12 or 14 and he, he pointed to a name in the paper and said, uh, you know, put a, put a dollar on that horse. She'll be coming in for sure. Sure enough, she did. <laughs> Did you get the dollar on? Uh, I didn't, but I always remember the story uh, because uh, Mick would tell stories about all the sort of shenanigans that would go on in the racing industry. You know, the, the taking horses and swimming them in the sea overnight so that they'd be exhausted by the time of the race and, uh, but not showing any signs of bruising. <laughs> uh, fantastic character. Yes, I mean, he had that extraordinary ability to bring together the... Uh, working class and intellectual sides of the Labor Party, those, those two wings without, without which the bird doesn't fly, um, possibly in a better way than anyone, anyone since. Um, I may have gotten that from you, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, and, and then you went to uh, University of Adelaide. Uh, you were there with uh, Annabel Crabb, uh, Penny Wong, uh, various others uh, who've uh, since ascended through uh, the worlds of South Australian public life. Uh, how was your time at Adelaide Uni? Oh, look, it was terrific. I mean, I, I specialised in laziness while I was at the university. <laughs> uh, sort of sloth was my uh, was my was 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 my specialty. Um, although I sort of look back quite fondly on that. I mean, you can't you can't regret uh, too many uh, sunny afternoons spent under a tree, looking up at the sky, uh, conversing with your friends about politics and the world. So I, I mean, I look back on it very fondly. I mean, in some ways, I think. I mean, I, you know, I, I sort of exaggerate to some degree. Uh, um, uh, you know, I did spend a lot of time in the library reading widely. It wasn't focused reading. Uh, it certainly wasn't reading uh, required of me in any of the courses that I did. I mean, I was always curious at university, and um, uh, and I think that wide reading probably held me in better stead uh, over the longer term than um, than had I been more diligent uh, with the contract books or the or the tort law. Who were the authors that most influenced you through that period? Well, look, I was pretty interested in politics. Uh, when I was at university, and I mean, um, well, I mean, and, and I and I mean politics more broadly than perhaps party politics. I was never, I was never a student politician, uh, although Annabelle did at one stage uh, uh, head a ticket that I was encouraged to run on. Um, uh, but I was I was interested in politics. I think more more broadly defined. Uh, you know, I was very, uh, I was sort of. Uh, earnestly into Thomas Jefferson and Ralph Waldo Emerson, Abraham Lincoln, um, 
I would sort of read biography after biography of a lot of those a lot of those figures uh, you know and I think a you know a large part of that was a sort of a search for um, search for guidance in the world I think I was doing a lot of my reading was a search for you know how to how to position myself and how to think about the world and how it others uh, who had uh, who were wiser than me who had gone before me uh, how had they thought about the world um, you know, Emerson in particular had had a huge impact on me when I was very young, in my sort of late teens. Uh, um, you know, uh, there really was that sense of a man whose mind was literally on fire. Uh, he was he was just uh, uh, he was just a, so alive with ideas and so in touch with the world uh, and so engaged with it from an individual perspective. Uh, not from a position of received wisdom, but of, of, of genuinely engaging with the world and trying to understand it from his own vantage point. I found that hugely uh, appealing and influential uh, and still, still, still do, frankly. And uh, for all my time in the US, I would regularly go up to Concord uh, and seek out Emerson's house and his gravestone, similarly to Monticello with, with Jefferson. Um, they were too early... Uh, examples of people that I was influenced by, many, many others, mm, obviously. Mm. Uh, and you played a bit of uh, bit of footy over that period. Uh, you play, uh, played AFL for the uh, uh, for Adelaide University. Tell me, uh, how did your uh, your team get revved up before games? Uh, well, I'm not sure if I've told you a story in the past that you're looking for me to retell. You might have to. I, I am. You might have to. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so, Tell I mean, me about your motivational, uh, your motivational pre-game speakers, Mac. Uh, well, I should say, I mean, in the early days that I was at university, I did play quite seriously. Uh, so I played uh, Division One football for the university. Um, uh, and funnily enough, think back about that uh, frequently. I often dream about it uh, somewhat uh, funnily enough. Hmm. Um uh, in part because I think I was young, I was a young man playing uh, football. Uh, you know, sort of 18 uh, when I first played Division One football for the university, and we were playing against men. Uh, and a lot of these men were uh, were very uh, were very big. Um, and of course, it wasn't unlike US college sports where you play other universities. That is not the case here in Australia. So we're playing. You know, playing uh, uh, sort of uh, suburban and community clubs, uh, often very rough, uh, and so you'd certainly get touched up a fair bit on the on the on the weekend. It was quite violent in, in uh, at times, and as a young man, I was quite uh, fearful. I think uh, looking back, I'm not fearful, but I was certainly apprehensive every time I took the field. I mean, I loved playing football, uh, but I was apprehensive that I would be um, that I would be hurt. Uh, not unreasonably, if I told you many of the stories. I mean, it was, uh, you know, some unsavoury characters that take the field. Uh, um, uh, but I think in, uh, one of the things that I often dream about is I think I was overly intimidated as a young man by a lot of this uh, uh, sort of aggression, which I, I think was, was probably more, um, was more in my head than real. And I, I sort of wonder if I, uh, you know, with a sort of a, a later, uh, a later stage maturity, mm. Uh, mm. whether I would not have been as intimidated as I was at the time. Um, uh, but back to your question, I, I mean, I, at, a, at a later stage of my uh, football playing career, I did play a little bit more socially. 
uh, and um, and in the context of, uh, of 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 that team, which was uh, dubbed the Chardonnay Socialists, we did uh, have a number of sort of <laughs> high-profile speakers come and uh, and provide the motivational motivational talk ahead of the games. Who were your favourites? Uh, we did have we had Don Dunstan come along at one at one stage. Uh, so um, uh, my father had uh, had worked closely with Don. Uh, I didn't know him well, but um, uh, but he came along and gave a gave a, a rousing a rousing speech to the team. <laughs> uh, and then uh, after you after you left university, you uh, went into. Did you go straight into working for Michael Kirby? I did. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I want to thank you. I mean, I, I, you gave that very kind introduction uh, at the beginning. Um, you know, I perhaps owe my role with uh, Michael Kirby to you. I remember you telling me that you sifted through the hundreds upon hundreds of resumes that Michael received <laughs> and you pulled mine out saying, this is, a, this, this is an individual who looks exactly like me. Uh, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's exactly the way it went. Um, what did he teach you? Uh, many things. I mean, what a what a wonderful man! What a wonderful man! Mm. Uh, truly, uh, one of the great one of the great Australians, and a tremendous privilege to have worked for him. Uh, um, you know, I learned many things from him. You know, just just like a river flows downhill. You know, the the the, the flow of wisdom was all one way uh, from him to me, of course. Uh, uh, but I, I mean, if I, you know, there, the, the, the thing that I took from Michael was a, um, and, and this is a theme that I suspect we'll touch upon in the course of our discussion today, but was a sense for living history that, uh, as a judge, he saw, uh, antecedent judges that had preceded him as sitting literally by his elbow. It was as if it was as if the history was with him in the courtroom, that they that that the arguments of the past were the arguments that he brought to bear uh, in the current battles that he was uh, that he was enjoining on the court. Uh, that sense of a living history that it's nothing, it's not the past. Mm. That the generations are all connected together, and this is all one Australian story, uh, and that uh, and that the past needs to be brought into the present and the future. That was a big, you know, that was a real theme for Michael. I mean, he, you know, you, you know as well as me, his office was adorned with photos of great judges from the past, uh, you know, Denning and, and Lionel Murphy and others. Um, you know, he did have that wonderful sense of tradition that he was, you know, that, that, he, was, um, that he was sitting in the seat today, but really he was, he, he was the continuer of a tradition. Remember finding that a bit sort of uh, stuffy at first. It was it, it's the the monarchist side of him that uh, that that I always sort of um, pushed back against. But as you say, that uh, that Burkean notion has a has a value value to it. Yeah. Uh, respecting that institutions and ideas aren't just formed by individuals, but but they're the pro they're a process of accretion, almost geological. Exactly. I mean, I've got a wonderful story. I'm not sure if Mike would appreciate me saying it, but I'll tell it nonetheless. Uh, having him, Michael, having left the court now, but uh, I'm not even sure if I've told you this story, Andrew. But it was a Saturday night, and um, I'd been out 
drinking. Uh, and on my way home, probably at about 11 o'clock, coming in from the city, I needed to pick something up from Michael's chambers to work on on the Sunday. And so I went into his, into his chambers, and at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, there he was, sitting at his desk. Was all, everything was pitch black, but he had his little desk lamp on. And he was wearing a baseball cap and a tracksuit, you know, as he's his wont on the weekend. And we got to talk, and he was drafting a, a judgment in a native title case. And we, we, we spoke for perhaps 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, you know, and he was asking, you know, he was, he was asking questions about, you know, do you, uh, you know, what do you think Lionel Murphy would have done in this situation, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and as I walked out, he sort of called me back and as I looked around, he said, I just hope we're doing the right thing by the Aboriginal people. And it's, uh, you know, it moves me to tears every time to think that. Uh, you know, a, a judicial administrator on the highest court in the land is in his office at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, uh, you know, trying to administer justice on behalf of a group of people who've been disadvantaged throughout Australian history. It just reminds me of what a wonderful contribution a lot of people make to the country. Yes. And, uh, and always that sense of thinking about where law could be used as, uh, to help the voiceless rather than to help the powerful. You know, I remember whenever there was a question of the priority order in which cases should be heard, he would invariably think about uh, the individual who was challenging a criminal conviction because of the possibility that you might have uh, an innocent person languishing in jail. Uh, and that case always had to be heard before a dispute between two companies in which there was simply a matter of, uh, of money at hand. Uh, did, you, did you love the law? I mean, remember some of our, our contemporaries, people like Jamie Edelman and Ben Kramer, really, really loved the law. Uh, did you? No, never, never. Um, I, found it, uh, I found it boring for the most part. Uh, um, uh, you know, I would. I mean, and more than that, I would. I mean, I would sit. I would sit in the in the high court and watch the great QCs uh, uh, come before the court, and I would think there was no way that I could possibly compete at that level. This wasn't what really moved me. Uh, it wasn't what really interested me. And um, I think to succeed at that level, you really need you, you, you needed to to love it. And I never. I, I never, I never had that. I, I mean, I, you, you and I were much more similar. I mean, we had, we had politics as our, our, um, our primary interest. Certainly, both of us back then. Mm. Uh, and then you head off to the United States. How did you, uh, how did you feel when you, uh, when you hit the US? Well, and I loved it. And as I said before, you know, the US had always been really important to me. Uh, so, you know, I'd mentioned people like Jefferson and Emerson and Lincoln. Uh, you know the, U the U.S. politics had always, um, and I mean much beyond that. Uh, you know Woodrow Wilson and uh, Teddy Roosevelt were uh, Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, I, you know, to me, American politics was the big game. This was the big stage, and uh, you know, you know, I arrived at Princeton, and you know, all of a sudden I was taking, you know, international trade courses with Paul Krugman and macroeconomic classes with Ben Bernanke. Uh, you know, uh, uh, psychology courses with Danny Kahneman, uh, you know, I took a military history course with David Petraeus. I mean, you're suddenly, you're right in the middle of the, of the big story. I absolutely loved it. And did you, did you think differently about Australia through that lens? I, I suppose I'm thinking not just of 
mid 2000 when you land in the US but but over the course of the ensuing years did your uh, your, your view about your home country shift uh, I think so um, you know I'd spent plenty of time outside the country before I went to the US I'd lived in Germany for a year after I graduated from high school which was for me a much more I mean, that that was the point in my life where I sort of confronted Australia from the outside mm. for the first time. Um, that was the that was the real learning. Uh, I mean, that was a, a real learning experience for me where you sort of I arrived in in Germany uh, and then, you know, you're presented with this this intense history of civilization. I mean, there's not a there's not a, a field in Germany which doesn't have history plowed into it. And um you know, just the intensity of 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 the history, mm. uh, whether it be in the architecture or the art or the music, uh, ev- everything about it was so intense. And I remember as a 17-year-old when I first arrived in Germany, um, feeling overcome by that intensity. It's difficult for an Australian who moves overseas, particularly to Europe, I think, uh, where your education and your background has spanned decades, you've only ever had to really grasp decades, to suddenly be put in an environment where you need to grasp centuries. And I think that's a, it's a difficult transition for all Australians to make. You've, there's this dis, dis, uh, it's sort of disorienting, um, much like it is disorienting for the European who comes to Australia and finds the light too pure, too white, too bright. Uh, you're not used to you're not used to living in that environment. And I think I really struggled uh, when I first went to Germany with the intensity of the culture. I was extremely interested in it. Um, you know, I, I was I was a lover of classical music and of Wagner and Mahler and Bruckner and Bach and Mozart and you know I I, I admired Goethe and so I, I mean so I was receptive and curious to to it all, but it was too much. And, um, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes the intensity of experiences can be too much to, uh, to take. Um, uh, and you sort of shy away from them a little. I sometimes think that that's what happens when Australians go to, like, a great museum like the Louvre or to, you know, the National Gallery or to the, to the Med in New York. And it's just too overwhelming. There's too much to, too much to take in. And that's... that's, that's Definitely how I, how I felt. I'm not sure, I mean, you know, I still feel it sometimes today. I walk through Oxford University or, you know, I go see the Evensong at Westminster Abbey and there's something in it that moves me in a way that, uh, that is, um, uh, you know, that I, f- I feel uncomfortable sometimes. Where there's a, like you just can't take that much beauty. I was, I was, uh, so it's something that I've always found, uh, always found curious about myself. I suspect it's true of many, many others as well. If we had more of a sense of indigenous history, which you know you're talking about decades versus centuries, and and now we're talking millennia, uh, do you think we'd be better able to ta- to um, wrap our heads around European history? Um, I think they're comparing apples and oranges. I mean, I, 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 we we would obviously both support a much richer understanding of indigenous history. I think there is nothing. The country would 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 nothing but gain uh, through having a much richer history of um, of 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 uh, of the indigenous peoples. Um, 
Uh, but it's a, and I, I, now I'm speaking deeply outside my uh, realm of knowledge. But I see, I see, um, I, I, I see in indigenous history a great, uh, a great cultural and wisdom tradition. Uh, to me, there is great wisdom that emanates from that cultural history. Uh, but it's less of the sort of, uh, it's less of the sort of, um, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the thick accumulation of events mm. that you find in Europe where, you know, where, where there's, an, an, there's, there's, there's art and music and books and history from every year of a, you know of a thou- of a thousand years and so that accumulation can be what's sort of can be what, what is disorienting mm. um, mm. you know I don't uh, I don't go to Europe and 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 engage with Christianity and find that uh, uh, bewildering or disorienting so I, I wonder I wonder if the analogy is better between wisdom traditions uh, rather than the sort of you know um, uh, the Aboriginal wisdom tradition on one hand, and the and the sort of you know the 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 accumulation of historical events yes. that I associate with Europe. Uh, we've um, we've got the arc of you uh, being in the United States, and I don't want to lose that uh, that chronological narrative. But since you mentioned uh, Christianity, uh, I know that your your relationship with Christianity has uh, has shifted quite a bit over the course of your life. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, well, I grew up in a family uh, where both my parents were quite stridently atheist, uh, and it was a you know it was certainly a part of uh, our family's identity, um, uh, and I was too. Uh, certainly, I, I was as a as a high school uh, as a high school student and a university student, um, sort of precociously and arrogantly atheistic. I would say in in hi- in hindsight. Um, Laughing at people who had friends that weren't there and that, that sort of thing. yeah, and just I mean, unless that's not really my disposition actually to, but 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 certainly privately mocking mm. the the whole thing, uh, sort of the ridiculousness of it all, um, the futility of it all, you know, the inability of people to live their lives without a you know a sort of a, a religious crutch. Um, uh, uh, but certainly, my view on that has evolved over time. Um, uh, you know, I, I, uh, um, I'm married now to a woman who's, uh, who's very Catholic. Uh, you know, our, our, our children are baptised in the Catholic Church. Uh, we attend Mass uh, regularly. Um, I would not say that I am a literal believer. Well, I'm certainly not a literal, literal believer. Uh, nothing has changed for me in, in that sense. Um, but I now understand Christianity to be so much more than a literal story. It is for me a wisdom tradition. It is a community. It is a way for us to understand the inherent mystery and the paradox and the fog of, of life in, in a way that nothing rational can ever comprehend. And it's not to say that religion gives you the answer, the literal answer, it gives you the metaphor that somehow uh, gives wing to a feeling inside you that that's how it really is, and I get that from classical music, and I get that from art, and I get that from I can get that from poetry and literature. 
you know, I can read Chesterton and the same, the same love of paradox that Chesterton uses is, is you know, is again, uh, or T.S. Eliot, uh, it, you know, nicely captures the mystery of, of what it is to be, to be alive. And so I find, I find the literal interpretation of, uh, of, of Christianity, or frankly any religion that is prevalent among atheists, to be so limiting, to be so narrow, uh, and to be so unproductive. It's, you know, if I was to say to you that, an, you know, with an Aboriginal Dreamtime story, that a giant snake did not, in fact, you know, carve out the Murrumbidgee River, you'd look at me and just say, why, why, why are you talking about, why are you talking about that? If I, if, if, if I said to you that, uh, you know, that, that, that the story of Wagner's Parsifal is not true, it's just a myth, you would say, well, of course, of course it is. Um, you know, truth, there are different types of truth in the world. Uh, and to view everything within a sort of a small t truth is, I think, very limiting. Uh, uh, and so in that sense, my view on, you know, I, 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 I have changed my view on Christianity, not in the sense that I'm a literal believer, uh, but as the, you know, the priest at the church that we used to attend in New York would say, you know, Christianity is the most beautiful myth. Uh, and to me, that really reson reson resonates. And when I attend, uh, when I attend mass, uh, you know, the ritual and the incantation and the uh, the ceremony of it all, uh, which has been performed for generations, speaks to me in a very uh, meaningful way. Do you feel you're a nicer or a better person as you as you walk out of the church? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, it gives me a space to reflect uh, on um, the way I uh, behave and um, and deal with others. I mean, they're just very. There are very lovely things in the in in the part of the Catholic Mass where you turn to the your neighbour and you shake their hand. Uh, it's a. I mean, it is a lovely way for a community to come together. Uh, for you to meet people uh, of different walks of life that you wouldn't normally associate with. Um, uh, you know, I think there's something very powerful about all of that. And I do, fe I do feel coming out of, uh, coming out of, a, of, a, of the Mass, uh, you know, a better, a better and, a, and a more elevated person. Now, of course, I feel that way coming out of a classical music concert. I don't mean to suggest that this is the only way that you can get that, uh, that you can get that feeling. But I think... We live in an age where uh, there is not enough account given to the mystery of life, uh, you know, to to the to the to the mystery and the uncertainty and the magnificence of it all, uh, um, and finding ways to engage that, uh, whether it be uh, through a through a, a re religious ceremony or a, a musical performance or or the theatre, perhaps. Uh, I think is um, is extremely important. Yes, I started today uh, attending a, a s breakfast called the Seven Fourteen Group uh, that a, a group of uh, men in my electorate put on, and uh, we were talking about 
uh, where those conversations take place in, in their community. They're all Christians, they're active in their churches, but they see that the membership's dwindling. And one of them said, oh, it's in the men's sheds. And he told this lovely tale about how uh, he had worked with uh, uh, another guy on fixing up an old park bench. And they'd worked side by side for three weeks. And then they, uh, uh, they talked about where the bench would go. And the man said, uh, well, I haven't really talked to anyone else about this, but I don't want it in my house because my wife's gone and I don't need a seat that big. Um, but I do miss her. I miss her all the time. And, and thanks for, for just being around. And he said, you know, that exchange probably 50 years ago would have happened in some sort of a church context. But today it's happening in the, in the men's shed mm. context. Yeah, it's a good story. Uh, so you've you've touched on music a couple of times, and uh, so let's uh, let's dive into into music. You spent um, about a week in in Bayreuth in Germany last year to see four operas, the last of which takes five hours plus intervals, written by a guy who died in eighteen eighty three. Um, why? Uh, one of the great weeks of my life uh, in Bayreuth in Bavaria in Germany. Uh, 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 to see Wagner's Ring Cycle. Um, uh, oh, look, I mean, uh, it was just a, one, a, a wonderful experience and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm deeply grateful that I was um, fortunate enough to be able to travel there to see it. Uh, you know, I've seen the Ring Cycle many times um, uh, uh, in New York, uh, uh, but this was the first time that I'd seen it in Bayreuth, which was, uh, you know, in the Festspielhaus, which Wagner had built uh, specifically uh, to, uh, to to perform uh, the Ring Cycle, which, as you indicated, is a is a is a, 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 a sort of a, a musical uh, opera over over four nights. Uh, Look, I mean, where do you start with, with, with you know, what's quite possibly the towering achievement of, of Western civilization or of Western art? Um, uh, you know, look, I, I think um, uh, on one level it was just a great social event. Uh, you've got people who love Wagner uh, all coming together. They're all really passionate about it. They're knowledgeable. Uh, um, uh, uh, you know, but but you know, at a at a deeper level, it's you know, it's um, you know, when you see the ring cycle, you uh, it's like having your mind uh, rewired. Uh, somehow, over the course of these four nights, you are just swept up into this story of civilization. It is, it is, it, I mean, it it is, in fact, Wagner's account of the history of civilization, and you know, it starts off on the first night. Uh, uh, with you know in the in the in the in the pitch black Feschbielhaus, uh and you hear those dark uh, sort of uh, you know subtle uh, 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 notes uh, uh, e, e major note, e flat notes uh, come out uh, uh, representing the beginning of the world. Um, you know, it's just such a tremendously moving experience. I mean, it's a story of, you know, it's, as I said, the story of civilization, but it's a story of consciousness. It's a story of religion. It's a story of, of power and ambition and greed and betrayal and love. 
uh, and families and dysfunction. It's all all of them. I mean, it is the world. It is the whole universe in these in these four operas. And uh, you know, I mean, at a philosophical level, it's very deep. It was based off, uh, you know, Wagner based uh, the story off. Um, uh, of the insights of philosophers like Feuerbach and Schopenhauer. Um, uh, and so it is in some ways an allegory of, of civilization and the role of religion and the downfall of the gods, but much more than that. I mean, there's the music and the leitmotifs and the, the way it, it sort of it, it elicits these subconscious feelings from you uh, and it... it, it it leaves you feeling like you've just touched a live wire. You know, you've, you've somehow you've you've encountered something that's alive in the world, and it's some you know it's it's got everything in it. And you know, I mean, the in the intensity of the feelings that you go through uh, during those four nights are quite remarkable. And uh, you know, I, I mean, I was uh, I befriended these the, you know a couple of. Um, of French university students uh, while I was there. They were uh, studying, they were all, e each philosophy students writing their, their doctoral dissertations. But they would, uh, you know, before the, before the operas, uh, you know, they would, they, would, they would pop Ritalin pills in order to intensify the, uh, you know, the entire experience. Um, <laughs> and I know, I know for the sort of, for the, un the uninitiated, it seems crazy uh, you know, my mother just looks at me in complete and utter disbelief and horror when I speak to her about these things. Um, but it does, it does get a grip on you. And, uh, you know, the deeper you immerse yourself in it and the more you know about it, uh, you know, the deeper is its allure and its pull. And, of course, you know, I say that, uh, you know, with some conviction because I'm not the only person who feels this way. It's a long-standing... You know, whether it be Nietzsche or Baudelaire or, you know, frankly, we could name dozens and dozens and dozens of people over the years who've been intensely under the spell of Wagner. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there is a big debate around this about the sickness of Wagner, about, you know, that, that, it, that it does induce a sickness in people. And in part, there is an argument that that was part of the sickness behind National Socialism. How do you listen to music? I remember my high school music teacher telling me it was abhorrent to uh, to have music on in the background when one was doing any other activity. He uh, he said it's it's music and should be eschewed. You should only listen to music if it's the only thing you're doing. Is that how you consume your music? Well, it's certainly how I used to consume my music until I had young children. Uh, <laughs> now I'm a listener to music in your definition. Uh, so I listen to music mostly in the mornings. Uh, my kids are up at, uh, pretty early at five, but we always have classical music on uh, in the mornings. Um, uh, I play it pretty loudly, uh, so the kids are, you know, the kids are conducting it uh, in the morning. Um, what are their favourite pieces? Uh, well, funnily enough, my you know uh, uh, my kids like uh, my ki uh, my my daughter has a a strong preference for Bach and Mozart. Uh, she doesn't like uh, you know the sort of the heavier. She doesn't like Mahler or Bruckner or uh, or Wagner. Um, nor does my wife, for that matter. So, um, uh, but my son, who's pretty young, he's not really very young. I mean, he's only he's only two. Uh, so he hardly has expressed preferences <laughs> for classical music, but he, he does... Um, Old enough to enjoy Ride of the Valkyries, sure. Uh, well, he, I mean, he does, uh, he does conduct uh, uh, during, during certain performances. 
and do you uh, do you still follow music with a with a score in hand? Uh, no, no. Well, I mean, my uh, so uh, my music reading abilities are really uh, are limited. Uh, so um, uh, so I've in fact never really done never really done that. Mm. Uh, certainly at times, I mean, while I was in New York, I used to go to Carnegie Hall frequently. Uh, I knew the ushers at Carnegie Hall, so I would just walk in. Um, but I would frequently be standing with groups of people who uh, would be reading the music uh, directly. Um, certainly uh, every time I go to the proms, I always stand, and um, I'm always standing there with people who are reading the music. It's one of, my, one of the great regrets of my life, frankly, mm, mm. Uh, that I can't read music in, um, in, 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 in sort of finer detail. But let's switch tack to, uh, to leadership. You're, you're very interested in, in leadership, and, uh, and like many, uh, interested in the, uh, the role played by... Paul Keating, an Australian life. Um, why does Keating hold a special place in your imagination as, a, as, a, as, a, as an Australian leader? Well, uh, for both of us, you know, I think the what is probably um, uh, certainly one one reason for both of us is that we came of age in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, and so just as previous generations had seen Gough Whitlam as, you know, as a, as a sort of a, you know, as a, as a monumental Australian leader, I think so we grew up in the age of Paul Keating mm. and, and, um, and took our leadership lessons from him. I suspect there's a fair degree of truth to that. But I'll put that to one side because, frankly, I do think... Uh, that Paul Keating is the great Australian Prime Minister. I think he's the great Australian statesman. statesman. Um, frankly, I don't think there's a single other Australian leader who can hold a candle to him. Uh, now, uh, I, I will go on to try to justify uh, that statement, which probably will appall many. Um, but I will just say that, uh, you know, in the course of, uh, you know, close, as you said, close to two decades in the US, I did meet... Well, except for Donald Trump, I met, I've met all, all of the surviving US presidents. Um, uh, and I've come reasonably close to uh, both presidential power and to, um, and to corporate power or financial power. Uh, I've interacted with many CEOs, and many financial princes. And, uh, you know, in my estimation, Paul Keating is truly a leader on a global, of, a, of global stature. Uh, I actually had a conversation with Bill Clinton once, uh, where he told me that uh, that in his estimation, Paul Keating was one of the was one of the most remarkable individuals that he'd ever met. Um, <clears throat> but you know, if I if I had to explain, I mean, you know, there was just something remarkable about Paul Keating and the way his mind worked. Uh, you know, and and for me, growing up in Adelaide in the 1980s and the 1990s, I mean, the way that he spoke about the country and the vision that he had for the country just seemed to give seemed to give Australia this sort of sense of elan and this sense of possibility. Um, and, you know, I still think that Australia is trading off the back of his vision, both economic and social, uh, sort of 20 and 30 years later. Um, but in terms of his, you know, in terms of his leadership, I would say that, you know, I think that he, you know, for me, what's truly important about a leader 
is the sort of the deep integrative thinking that a leader does on behalf of the country. Um, and Keating did that. And that is, a, that is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do, to quarry deep within yourself and surface those insights about a people uh, that, are, that are meaningful to them and that give direction to the country. Uh, you know, that is an artistic achievement. I mean, that is, that, is, that is what a Beethoven or a Rembrandt or a Dostoevsky are doing. You know, that, 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 that quarrying deep in yourself and that leeching out the sort of, you know, the, that sense of what could be. And that is a wonderful gift to give to the country. Uh, and, that's what, and that's what Keating did. Now, when, when you are an artist like that, when you're engaged in that sort of artistic achievement, it comes at a great cost. And if you, if you think about the people that I just mentioned, uh, a Beethoven or a Rembrandt or a Dostoevsky, I mean, the deep personal flaws attached with these people, or Wagner, I mean, because it's so genuinely difficult to, to disinter those ideas from yourself and present them fully packaged to the world. Most people don't have the courage or the generosity or, frankly, the ability to do that. And Keating did. Um, what he presented to Australia was a view of the country uh, and an integration of economics and social forces, which was world-leading. I mean, this was, this was the vision of the world which was picked up by Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and Gerhard Schroeder and a whole bunch of social democrats around the world. He led the world from Australia. I mean, no one's ever... I mean, you know, maybe you could make a case for Deakin leading the world, but not, no one else... In, I mean, you know, people say that Gough was a great leader and certainly he was a great man. But what Gough did... I mean, Gough came to power in the early 1970s and he led Australia forward into the 1960s. It was catch-up. Everything that Gough did, pretty much, had been done in the US and the UK and Europe a decade earlier. And it's not to say that he wasn't a great individual and he was a, obviously a man of monumental abilities and, and characteristics. But as a leader, he didn't have a uniquely original vision for the, for the country. He just, he just brought Australia into line with where the rest of the world was. Um, now, I don't mean to diminish that, but I just mean to set that side by side with Paul Keating, who genuinely led the world. And I think that, that, that's why many people outside of Australia look at Paul Keating as, as a genuine global statesman. Um, you know, you sometimes hear this, uh, this notion that, you know, Bob Hawke had the political capital, he had the relationship with the people, he had this great, you know, this great embrace uh, of the Australian public, and that it was Paul Keating who, who, who was able to, to spend the capital. Uh, and somehow, in that formulation, we're meant to think that Bob Hawke was the was the was was the was the great figure. Um, but I sometimes, you know, I sometimes like to say, can can any can any of your listeners name the financial investors in Apple or in Google? No one no one thinks about the supplier of the capital. Like everyone thinks about the person who had the vision, who was actually able to. To execute it, and I think in time we will come to see Paul Keating as the architect of really of modern Australia. You draw this distinction, or certainly have done in our conversations, between good leaders and great leaders. Is um, is greatness simply 
the next stage up from from being good? I don't think so, no. I mean, I think they're two fundamentally different things. And I think, I mean, to reference Paul Keating again, I think he was a great leader, but he wasn't a good leader. Uh, He had the qualities of greatness. He had sort of had this touch of Midas. But, you know, he failed in some of the basic political ways that we just expect from politicians, um, from our leaders. Uh, You know, good good leaders, I think. Australia's been blessed with many good leaders, you know, they're decent, they're fair, they're pragmatic. Uh, uh, but I don't think we've been blessed with many great leaders. And I don't think that, as you'd indicated, that it's a sliding scale where you can just uh, uh, be elevated from good to great. I mean, I think if you, if you do think of the great leaders of the past, you know, if you think of Churchill, for instance, I mean, you know, until, uh, until Churchill led... Uh, Great Britain through the Second World War. I mean, he was considered close to insane. I mean, um, he was egotistical, uh, mad. Uh, you know, he was he was he had none of the qualities that would constitute a good leader, and yet he had all of the qualities which were needed for a great leader. Now, the same could be said of uh, the same could be said of Teddy Roosevelt. The same could be said of Benjamin Disraeli or uh, Abraham Lincoln. Um, you know, Alexander Hamilton, Edmund Burke you'd mentioned earlier. I think all of those leaders exhibit qualities of greatness. Uh, uh, none of them exhibited the qualities that we would think of as being uh, good in a leader. Does that mean aspiring leaders need to choose between being good or great? Uh I suspect that for most people, it's not a cho- for, for most leaders, it's not a choice that they can ever make. I mean, it's just who they it's who they are. It's what mm. they commit. what they're committed to. It's more that the circumstances only favour the great leaders occasionally. Um, you know, most of those leaders that I just mentioned were elevated in times of war. Uh, not all of them, but most of them. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's there's a there's a certain type of leader that sees himself as an artist. I mean, I don't think you would. I don't think. You know, I don't think our recent crop of Australian prime ministers would ever, ever think of themselves in terms of artistry. I don't. I mean, you know, uh, Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd and uh, Tony Abbott. Uh, no, none of them would think of their uh, their leadership as akin to uh, artistry. Um, Winston Churchill. Benjamin Disraeli, Abraham Lincoln. I mean, these were these these were men deeply versed in 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 history and literature, and poetry and music, uh, and they absolutely saw themselves as the writer of their nation's histories. Uh, you know, I mean, um, uh, uh, you know, I think Ruskin once said that you know. That nations' histories are written in three books: great deeds, great history, great art. Uh, they're sort of of a piece, and um, uh, you know, greatness in greatness in leaders is is, in my view at least, is about is about that integrative thinking where you're able to tell a story of the nation. You're able to bring its past to bear. You know, we sort of touched on this right at the beginning. That sort of Burkean notion of the of the past always needing to be present, uh, 
and the sort of the linking of the generations through these intergenerational bonds. It's, it is one thing that I think the church does really well that we didn't touch on before. It's one thing that I'm really interested in in classical music and history is that it, when I go to a concert and listen to, you know, Mahler's Second Symphony, I mean, it sounds exactly the same as it did a hundred years ago. You, you, the past comes to life when you listen to it. it literally comes to life. And it walks, you know, those notes walk the auditorium. Uh, um, and there's something, you know, there's something wonderful about bringing the past to bear in the, in the present. And I think that's what, those, that's, what the, that's what great leadership is about. It's about understanding the nation's history through its books and its literature and its art and its people and being able to bring that to bear in the politics of our, of our time. You know, the franchise in Australia is not 23 million people. It's probably 100 million people or 500 million people because it's the sum of all the Australians who have gone before today's Australians and, this, and future Australians. It's, all, it's, it's everyone together in this unified nation. And that, and that is what the leader needs to understand, that they're not governing on behalf of just today's Australians. They're also, they're also building a story and they need to bring, uh, they need to bring with them the past, and I sort of think of, I think of Keating when he, you know, when he gave those great speeches, or when he, or when he articulated his vision for the for the nation, that you know he had with him people like, you know, at his elbow, you know, not literally, but in his mind, you know, the Manning Clarks and the, you know, and the Henry Handel Richardsons and the, you know, and the, you know, and the Arthur Streetons and the, you know, uh, he, he brought to bear the past. Uh, you know, in a in a way that I think is genuinely important to a nation understanding its purpose. But because it's risky, and you mentioned before that great leaders are often uh, emerge thanks to the circumstances that are around them, uh, and also perhaps because of this pretty well documented close relationship between uh, mental illness and uh, successful leadership. Uh, it's a hard way to live, isn't it? I think so, yes. And so, I mean, you, you know, we were... Um, well, we were speaking a couple of weeks ago about, uh, you know, to change tack slightly. We were talking about Orwell's great essay on Gandhi and, um, and uh, uh, you know... Orwell's point basically being that it's not healthy to, be, to aspire to be a saint. It's not human to aspire to be a saint. Uh, um, I think he, had, he I can't, I'm just going to paraphrase now, but he has this, he begins the essay with, with something wonderful like, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, saints uh, ought to be presumed guilty until proved innocent. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, and so I, I think the reason I raise that is I do, I do think that for, you know, for most of us being human and having relationships uh, and friendships and people that we love, uh, that's what it means to be human. To, to participate in a community and to expose yourself to the possibility that your heart will be broken uh, or friendships betrayed. I mean, that's what it means to be human and to, uh, to take yourself out of those, 
those sort of those traditional human bonds and to put yourself into a position where you need to be different or to lead um, uh, you know I think is that that's an unusual choice for uh, an individual to make do you aspire to be good or great um, yeah I mean uh, well it's a it's a difficult question because I mean I uh, you know in the in the distinction that we just discussed, I, I definitely aspire to be good. I mean, I aspire to be human, and I aspire to be a great father and a great husband and, uh, you know, a good colleague at work and a great friend. Um, they're the things that are important to me, and I'm not willing to sacrifice any of those. Uh, but beyond... When you, say a, when you say a great father, you don't, you don't mean with the sort of flights of artistic fancy you talked about before you just mean a you mean a very good father i take it oh, sorry yes yeah. I, I mean a, a fantastic father to my yeah. to my yes. to my to my children uh but i do aspire to excellence uh now i'm not sure if we're just semantically passing all of these words now but i i mean i do aspire to do things that i do well um i think that uh you know i my own personal views is not enough. There's not enough effort in Australia to pursue excellence, um, and I think we could do a lot better on that front. And certainly, my ambition is to contribute in that respect, in yet to be uh, <laughs> ascertained ways. How, uh, I mean, how how do you see Australia differently after nearly two decades living in the United States? You've you've just moved back here at the end of last year. Most of your time was in law and finance in, uh, in New York. Uh, how did that make you view Australian culture, innovation, the economy, the society differently? Um, well, we've moved back. Uh, so we voted with our, uh, we voted with our residency um, uh, for many reasons. Uh, you know, I think... Um, uh, uh, we have young children uh, whom we wanted to grow up Australian, uh, and it's a it's a wonderful country, and it's um, and so I certainly wanted that for my children. Uh, um, I would say also professionally, I got to a stage where I was not invested. I mean, I was not invested in the U.S. It didn't mean anything to me as a as a country. Um, I had an intellectual interest in it, uh, but it was it. it didn't move me uh, in the way that Australia does. I mean, for me, for my re my uh, uh, my affiliation with Australia has always been much like uh, you know how most of us think about our families, uh, in the sense that I have intense pride in it and it means a lot to me. Uh, but I also really struggle with this desire to want it to be better, um, and that's something that I wanted to contribute to. And this sense that if I continued to stay in the US, I wouldn't have that opportunity to contribute to a country and a community that was deeply important to me. Um, uh, so this, I mean, you know, so, uh, you know, but I should, uh, I should say, I mean, it's a uh, what a wonderful country, what a what a what a remarkable blessing uh, uh, to have that passport. Um, and uh, you know, there's not a day that goes by where I'm not truly grateful, uh, truly grateful for that. Uh, but that, um, but there is in Australia that sense of complacency that I would love to see. I mean, I say, you know, sometimes I joke that Australia is a bit like an Achilles tendon. 
you know, it can be it can be stretched out and it can become nice and lithe and limber and it can do remarkable things, but its natural tendency is always wanted always to contract back, to shrink back. And uh, you know, um, uh, that's the part of Australia that I would like to to improve. So let's draw our conversation to a close. So what advice would you give to your teenage self? You know, I mean, like I'm trying to work out my own way through the world as it is. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure that I have advice for my teenage self. Uh, um, uh, you know, I mean, I, uh, you know, if I was flippant, I could say that I wasted far too much time uh, in, um, in my younger days. But I still do, so it's hardly, it's hardly, it's hardly, sort of, uh, you know, mature, uh, sort of age-worn advice. Um, uh, so, you know, I think that one we'll need to revisit. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Uh, well, we talked before about atheism. Uh, that's certainly uh, that's certainly something uh, that I've changed my mind on. Uh, there are many. There, I mean, there are many things that I've uh, changed my mind on. Um, uh, you know, uh, what else? I don't think uh, I I couldn't envisage that America would ever elect a president like Donald Trump. Uh, you know, and I'd always been a uh, I'd always been a very uh, forceful advocate for the US as a force for good in the world uh, of sort of wise steady leadership well uh, <laughs> that got trashed in November um, so I've certainly changed my mind on, on, on that When are you most happy? Uh, well um, I would say well, I would, I would, I'm going to do the economist thing and, and I'm going to separate out happiness from contentment. Uh, I'm most content with my kids and my family. Uh, um, that's when I have the, you know, the sense that all is right with the world and that this is where I'm supposed to be and these are the people that I'm supposed to be supporting and helping and uh, mentoring. Uh, but when am I most happy? Uh, I would say... Um, you know, I'm most I'm happiest uh, when I'm travelling. I'm happiest on road trips. We've done a bunch of road trips, Andrew. Uh, uh, I love that. Um, I love I love that sense of freedom and uncharted possibilities of exploration. Um, you know, particularly through the US or Europe, where you you know where you then wrap history, art, and music all around. I mean, that that for me is. Uh, that for me is when I'm, uh, you know, I'm I'm happiest. I do a lot of fishing, uh, I do a lot of fly fishing. I'm deeply happy there, where I'm sort of immersed in in nature, in a in a sort of an unconscious way, or I should say, in a way where I'm lacking self consciousness. Um, you know, one of the great things about fishing is that it it just takes me completely into nature. So that you know, if I go for a hike, for instance, I tend to be in my own mind. Uh, and I'm not really concentrating on what I'm seeing. When I go fishing, I'm deeply uh, perceptive about everything that's going on around me, the flow of the river, 
the insects that are hatching off the river, the trees that are growing nearby, the way the birds are, uh, are swooping on the river. I mean, I'm just trying to integrate everything that's going on around me. And I will lose myself for hours in that, pro in that process. And I feel as if I've got out of myself and in some ways found myself in, in nature. It's that return to the return to the unconscious. Uh, but, uh, you know, that is, a, that is a source of deep happiness for me too. Emerson would have been proud. Uh, he would be. He would be. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, I mean, for me, for, for me, it's it's the regular exposure to art. Um, you know, I could, uh, I mean, it's I, so I exercise quite a bit. And, uh, you know, obviously, I aspire to be an athlete like you, Andrew. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, but for me, that's never been a source of um, of sort of mental well-being. I mean, for my wife, if she, you know, if, if Tanya doesn't exercise every day, uh, you, you know, she goes stir crazy. It's just an it's an important part of her her her. Um, her well-being for me for me art is like that music um I, if you know if i go a couple of days without having listened to, to to music or 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 read read something which connects me out of the out of my day-to-day -day life uh and you know i mean for most of us it's you know it's a you know you get up race to get the kids ready you pack them off uh you know you race into work you're in meetings all day um, you know, I do a lot of, you know, my job is a, a lot of investing and negotiating. Uh, so, you know, it's, so it takes a lot of my mental energy uh, throughout the day. Um, I get home, have to, you know, put the kids to bed, etc. You know, um, I, I then end up crashing into bed and watching Netflix. And if I do that for too long, I feel like my, you know, ev the the... The sort of the grandeur of life has just, you know, has just been narrowed. Mm. And for me, it's important that I remind myself uh, of the beauty and the majesty and the mystery of the world, whether it that be, you know, by listening to a Bruckner symphony or, you know, listening to Mozart or, you know, reading a poem or um, re reading, uh, reading a great essay, or whether it be you know, going to mass on a Sunday or going for a hike or going fishing, those, those ways for me to, uh, to get in touch with what's truly important uh, is, um, is essential for my uh, sort of men mental and physical well-being. And your guilty pleasures? You mentioned a few in, there, uh, in, oh, in that answer there. Uh, way too many, way too many. You know, um, all, the, all, the, all the obvious ones... Um, uh, you know, so because I'm naturally indolent, uh, I will, you know, sit on the couch and drink whiskey and eat chocolate. Um, uh, uh, you know, I have many. I've, I'm a, uh, I, uh, you know, I buy way too many books. Uh, you know, Tanya's tried to institute a one-in, one-out policy in our household, so I've been forced to smuggle them in surreptitiously. Um, you know, half of them go unread. So, I, you know, I have a... Um, like the glutton whose appetite is, you know, is sort of larger than um, uh, than their stomach. Uh, sort of my intellectual curiosity is wider than, you know, the time that I have to <laughs> devote to the, <laughs> to devote to these things. And so, um, so I, uh, you know, I effectively believe I, I like to believe that 
somehow the acquisition of books will somehow translate to the uh, imparting of, of wisdom, uh, but that all it results in is a vast number of unread books on my bookshelves and a frustrated wife. Do they bring you pleasure when you walk past them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I do. I mean, I know people will think I'm crazy for saying this, but I literally do think of them as somewhat like friends. Um, so, uh, I mean, there is my, I mean, in my living room is my entire reading history. So, I, you know, I read in paper, I read paper books. I don't read, uh, I don't read on a Kindle. Uh, you know, I underline books. I've, I've got, I mean, I've got to the stage where I cannot even read a book without holding a pen uh, because I underline. I won't even start to roll. If I'm on a plane without a pen, I won't open the book. Uh, <laughs> um, it's this neurosis that I've, uh, I've, I've, I've developed. Uh, and Tanya, it drives Tanya irate, of course, because our sheets are now covered in pen stains. <laughs> Uh, but, um, no, absolutely. I do. I mean, you know, there's a real, uh, but I feel the same way about my CD collection. I mean, I could move to, uh, you know, I could move to a cloud-based music provider like Pandora, uh, Spotify. Uh, but I continue to like to use physical CDs, um, because I have a history with them and I can see them on my bookshelves and I can, you know, I can pass the, you know, I've got, I've got, hundreds of Bruckner symphonies and I can, you know, I can pass them quickly and choose which, you know, which one that I want to listen to that, 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 that morning and somehow to be surrounded by all of that. And it goes back to what I was, I mean, for me, uh, bringing to bear the past, the great achievements of the past, you know, you know, what Matthew Arnold called the best that's been thought and said. To me, that's an important part of feeling like I'm living a rich life. Uh, and so to remind myself by seeing the books that I've got, uh, by seeing the CDs that I've got, by seeing, you know, the uh, the photographs of great people that I admire, uh, you know, that that is a way for me to remind myself that, you know, the job that I do uh, day to day uh, is not is not the sum total uh, of my life. So no Kindle, no Spotify. Uh, do you ever feel like a 19th century soul trapped in a 21st century body? Uh, um, well, it's funny you should say that because, of course, the job that I do is, uh, you know, I'm responsible for investing in venture capital <laughs> initiatives, uh, innovation. Uh, so, no, perhaps, I mean, perhaps because a large part of my life is spent thinking about what does the future look like from a technology perspective? You know, what are the new... Uh, what are the new business models and the new uh, the new services uh, that we will all use? Uh, because I spend my day thinking about those things, uh, which is very much focused on the present uh, and the future. Uh, perhaps it, it sort of you know it, it generates this yearning in me for uh, uh, for for the past. You know, one thing I would say is that, and I'm going to reiterate a point that we've mentioned previously, but. You know, I think one of the things that we've found with new technology is that it has, it has, in one sense, shrunk the geographic size of the world. So Australia is no longer isolated in a way that it was even 20, even 20 years ago. I mean, when I went to Germany uh, in 1991, uh, you know, I, I didn't talk to my parents the entire year. I mean, it was, uh, it was probably, you know, it was a, probably a couple of dollars a minute 
to pick up the phone and make an international phone call. And we continued, we wrote letters, handwritten letters to each other. To each other. Um, and Australia, you know, there really was that tyranny of distance for Australia, very isolated. So that has, that has dissipated. So now, uh, you know, um, when, I, when I would come back to Australia from the US over the past few years, I would really notice that there was, there was not much difference in what my, Austra- my Australian friends were reading compared to what I was reading in New York. Same books are available, you know, the same stories, uh, you know, in the Sydney Morning Herald or the Australian or the New York Times. Everyone's, lots of people were reading the same things. There's no, there were no informational disadvantages based on geography anymore. So you've had this collapse in, in geographic distance in one sense. But in another way, we've sort of become trapped in this, 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 um, this uh, in the present uh, where everything is about today and now, and we sort of become infatuated by technology, uh, and we sort of think how because of because of technology and the internet and digital uh, digital innovation, that we live a very different life from what people lived 20 or 50 or 100 or 200 years ago, um, and that's just simply not true. Like the 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 innovations of today are really very uh, sort of you know remarkable on one level, but uh, uh, have just not transformed the way we exist as humans at all in another in another sense, and yet I feel like um, what we have developed uh, instead is a um, you know sort of a provincialism of time now. So whereas Australia used to be geographically provincial, but temporally cosmopolitan, today. We are geographically cosmopolitan. We all travel around the world in touch with other cultures, information. Temporally, we're provincial now in that we don't, we don't look back into the past. Uh, we don't think of the past as the same people that, inhabited, that inhabit the world today. We don't view their experience as being like, relevant. Uh, and I think we've lost, you know, we've sort of, We've, we've gained a tremendous amount by shrinking geography and we've lost a tremendous amount uh, uh, on the temporal side. Hmm. And finally, uh, what person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Well, I've, uh, you know, I mean, uh, many, many people, obviously, um, you know, there's one person that I often think about uh, who was um, uh, the father of the family that I went to live with when I lived in Germany uh, back in 1991. You know, I mean, you know, when I, when I left Australia, I had friends who had gone off as exchange students for this gap year to, um, you know, to Finland and Norway, and I sort of had dreams of you know, nubile Finnish women in saunas and, you know, all this fun that would be had. And, you know, I imagine maybe I might go off to France, uh, you know, where I would sit in Paris and drink absinthe and read Camus and, you know, engage in an affair with a 35-year-old woman. Um, But instead I ended up in this tiny little agricultural town uh, (laughs) in Lower Saxony in Germany. Uh, which was really, you know, which was, you know, and this is the this is the sort of the the Germany of, of of sugar beets and, you know, uh, and cabbage, uh, 
um, uh, you know, pretty a pretty sort of dour, flat uh, sort of northern northern Germany. Uh, uh, but I had the great fortune to end up in a family uh, uh, where the father of this family, a man named Klaus Forsman, a truly wonderful man, really took me under his wing uh, and, um, and sort of tutored me, as it were, in the grandeur of Europe. Uh, you know, uh, what, a, what, a, what an honour, what, what an honour. Uh, that he would take that time to do that for me. He was the executive of a very large division of a chemical company called Bayer in Germany. Um, <clears throat> but his own kids had left home and uh, I was living with him uh, for that year. And, uh, you know, I'd mentioned before about, you know, the first time that I'd moved from Australia to Germany and the sort of, you know, the how I was intimidated by the intensity of... of and he was the one who really guided me through all of that. We travelled a lot. Uh, through through Germany, uh, you know, he was um, deeply worried about my interest in Wagner, uh, constantly exhorting me <laughs> to spend more time with Goethe and with Mozart and Liszt, those sort of pan-European, those pan-European figures. So you see, you, you know, the Goethe and Liszt and, and Mozart, uh, you know, maybe even Beethoven as well, but, I mean, um, they were they were cosmopolitan in a way that, in a way that Wagner never was, you know, Wagner was was German, uh, and um, and he was, you know, he was a great believer in the in the European project, uh, um, and so, uh, you know, I think he he was just he for me he was a he was the first example that I I had ever seen of a businessman who uh, was leading a a an important and meaningful and ethical life. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd grown up in a family of, of politicians and public servants. And, uh, the, you know, the vision that I had of a noble career uh, was, uh, was politics and public service. And I, uh, Klaus was the first example for me uh, that, uh, that nobility and public service came in lots of different guises. And there were different ways to contribute. Um, and uh, you know he he certainly had a big impact on me at a young and impressionable age. Well, McGregor, we've uh, ranged a little longer than usual, uh, touching on Catholicism and AFL, uh, Emerson and Keating. Thank you for uh, taking your time, sharing your ideas, and. Uh, being today's guest on the Good Life Podcast. Well, thanks very much, Andrew. It was a real pleasure, and I'm looking forward to now uh, going and getting a couple of beers together. Me too. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please let your friends know via your favourite social media app. Of course, this podcast doesn't have anything to do with politics or policy, but if you want one that does, you might want to try my other podcast, Andrew Lee, Speeches and Conversations featuring a recent speech on reducing inequality. Next week, I'll be back with Deborah Rickwood on mental well-being.